So welcome to Social Meditations. I wanted to talk about uh, a theme that seems to come up a lot in my uh, exploration of spirituality and with the people I explore with. And it's a theme of what the nature of experience and reality is. And often this gets very philosophical, understandably, <laughs> and we end up making uh, proclamations or statements, proposing a theory or having an opinion is considered how human beings communicate ideas to each other. But what is that based on? Certainly we want to be understood and we want to share our experience or current understanding of our reality. But when we start to try to explain things that Perhaps we don't have every different discipline or way of looking at something at our fingertips. I mean, no one really does. We have people who are trained in scientific disciplines and people who are trained in psychological and disciplines and spiritual disciplines, but rarely do all those come together. And even if they do, it is simply the statement of that person or group of people. And this is the interesting idea that perception is an act of creation. You could say creation is perception. And this is not just a kind of relativism where, you know, whoever says whatever they say is what they say, and that's as valid as what anyone else says. And I think that that is, um, it lacks precision and doesn't really stand up to analysis or to, you know, even just feeling it through at a level of intuition. It seems like a, a way of kind of brushing the dust off your shoulders and saying, ah, I'm done. But I think the exploration of reality is multifaceted. And I sometimes think that there are multiple truths depending on what you're looking at. And because the act of perceiving is an act of creation, we create different realities. This is not the same as saying, I will now imagine that, you know, the matter that appears, which, you know, from a physics point of view, maybe it's not so solid and we assume it is. But let's just say, for example, that we're not debating the there's a table or a chair. I'm not saying that by thinking it's not there, that it ceases to be there for other people. <clears throat> 
I think the the causal world of the spectrum of matter and and energy, the four elements or five elements, as it's spoken of in the traditional Buddhist teachings. I don't think there's any need for this to be um, disputed. It's here. We have this level of perception. But there are different ways of perceiving. And as we know, based on the sense organs of different beings, different perceptions are possible. The mantis shrimp has, I believe, something crazy like 16 cones for colors in their eyes, and their eye lenses are polarized. And so they see a huge swath of colors if they're looking at the rainbow. It would be much thicker and larger because they see all these violet, ultraviolet rays that our eyes have supposedly three cones uh, to combine to see colors. If a ant is on your carpet, it could seem like a vast tract of wilderness or low scrub desert. So there is a relativism in the sense that different perceptions from different perspectives and different sense organs reveal different aspects of reality. The danger of trying to normalize or nominalize human perception and especially the use of intellect and so, you know, positing these statements about reality is that the statements, as we know, are not the same as the reality, just as the map is not the same as the territory. All of our representational thoughts point to actual dimensions of experience, which is often called phenomenology. The true experience or existence of subjective reality and for those who feel a kind of affiliation and conditioning towards the materialism point of view I'll just point out that in the idea of neuroplasticity studied by Richie Davidson at the University of Wisconsin and other places it is shown that subjective states of mind change the structure of the brain the physical structure so it's impossible to say that there isn't a functional quality to our subjective experience, even in the material world. Whenever we try to say, you know, oh, the brain is the source of consciousness or this or that, it is a representational level of consciousness that we are taking for granted, using and then denying the very experience that we're drawing the conclusion from. Experience is its own realm of reality, and therefore perception being an act of creation means that our different experiences and different ways of seeing things open up different truths. Sometimes we try to talk about this as in philosophy or in Buddhist philosophy as relative truth, which is dundam in Tibetan, or, I'm sorry, kunzap and dundam is ultimate truth. Relative truth and ultimate truth, trying to talk about the different 
ways that we perceive things based on different perspectives and levels of awareness we have or insight we have. The problem with this is that it often leads to what is called unity, or the highest view in the Buddhist teachings is the inseparability of dundam and kunzap, or ultimate and relative. That really it's a convenient linguistic mechanism and logical mechanism to sort of subdivide these or divide them up, but that helps in some ways at certain functional levels of development which are real experiences. So they are perceptions that happen. They are realities that appear. The status of those realities there is that perhaps they are part of something bigger and they're not um, as real as we think. But what we always say in the Buddhist teachings is even mere appearances are still in some kind of energy and luminosity though they may be part of a vast uh, unstructured emptiness, or they might express that emptiness, they, uh, the emptiness is not a nothingness. It has appearances. And though those appearances, often we get too solidified energetically around them. And it's really a perceptual problem. We kind of condense and solidify around them. So all of this is to say that maybe we don't need to posit theories in absence of a larger context of experience. In other words, we can share all the theories we want. Can we remember they're just theories? They are representational equations or word-based systems that happen within the medium of the larger reality. And this gets to the key point. We are in reality. Whatever religious perspectives one has, we must be all in one reality, right? Doesn't that just make sense? And yet, when we create different perceptual stances or perspectives, aren't we sort of living in different worlds as well? And here's where this notion of the simultaneity of two opposing or slightly different thoughts can coexist. And, you know, this is not a new philosophical idea. I think the transcendentalists were into this uh, in the sort of American, early non-dual American movement for, you know, the Europeans that came here. I, I do think that having a perspective that can be true, but doesn't have to be the only way to look at things is very helpful. And, and, you know, if we just say, well, that's your opinion, I think we almost invalidate that that opinion appears in reality. That relative perspective is dawning. And this is another fascinating point. We are all these living beings, all part of one basic life or self-awareness that is the universe, self-aware. And yet we manifest uniquely in all these different bodies and locations. So, there may be, and I do feel there are, deep universal truths that can be accessed. I do also think that once we start using words and ideas for them, we can label them or name them with different words and different methods, and we end up with different spiritual techniques, different psychological approaches, different scientific theories. But we must inherently, before even any concepts 
come into play. We are in reality and it is what it is. And, you know, this is sometimes called tatata or suchness in Buddhism, the idea of things are as they are. And then we come along and we're trying to understand them. And I think that's a kind of endless game. We could look at it in different ways and we can also create different sort of perceptual realms. So sometimes I've referred to this as zero and one thinking. We sort of go beyond what the computer contrast can do. We move into the simultaneity of being able to hold multiple perspectives. And the multifaceted jewel is a symbol for this. Uh, this is a jewel that has many facets on it as opposed to just a smooth crystal ball. And each facet represents a different perceptual perspective. And they're also all part of a whole. So this symbol also symbolizes the unity of ultimate and relative truth. Once we have a sense of the unity of ultimate and relative truth, we're kind of back to square one. And whatever you say, that is what is true for you right now, to the degree that it is. And then we can say something else. And don't and we see this all the time, even in the, the most powerful modern religion of science, the metaphysical kind of behaviors of scientists are outrageously blatant to me and maybe to many people, but it because it's the de facto sort of standard for what truth and how to access truth is in our modern world and it's done so much for the development of technology people have a lot of reverence for it and yet we see theories constantly being overturned or revised or downright disproven and then something else is proven that wasn't possible before but it's so easy to go along and say well see science says and also we'll hear a lot of this these days with people saying i read a study <laughs> there's a study that says and of course, studies take place in the human realm, and they're subject to all sorts of normative views and perspectives and people with blind spots and, and agendas, and even corporations you know, like Monsanto's has come in and had peer-reviewed studies redacted from journals where they have influence. And you know, they think, oh, that shouldn't happen. Well, I agree, but it but those kinds of things can happen. And of course, what gets funded is often research that fits in with the agenda of the powerful and the well-heeled. So I think it's amazing when we see breakout studies or research that, that show something that someone hasn't looked at and it reveals it. But I think a lot of us nowadays, and rightly so, in many ways we say, hey, look, there's a study or I saw this study. And yet knowing anyone who's done any of that work or who knows people who've done it or studied it themselves a little, <laughs> the study of studies, is that they are, again, highly human social enterprises with many influences. And it is possible that it's difficult to replicate certain studies because the very act of looking at certain things starts to create a certain reality. And then we look at things another way, and that creates a different reality. So the malleability of both the perceptual and social understandings make it so that while we can gain some sense of confidence that 
hey, this wasn't just one person's idea. They talked to a lot of people. They looked at a lot of data. And it seems to be a pattern that many people can reproduce. And that's the beautiful thing about the scientific method when it's truly agnostic. At the same time, it's never going to replace having first-person, empirical, subjective um, clarity and accuracy of perception. And here, this is where meditation comes in, in the training, in seeing our thoughts, noticing our projections, and beginning to look at consciousness and say, well, what is the nature of it? What is really going on? And I think this makes our minds more open and flexible and less opinionated when we're correctly practicing. And what I mean by correctly is we're not just continuing to look at our own consciousness and mind with a subtle intention to prove something we already think is true. Again, the same kind of problem that I mentioned in sort of metaphysical science, well, certainly metaphysical bias in religious practices is, is you know, deeply problematic for someone being accurate and honest. And when you think of honesty as this form of vulnerability and willingness to surrender to what is, and David White's poem of honesty in Consolations is a beautiful example of, of exploring what it means to align yourself or allege yourself with honesty over, you know, trying to hold up a party line or something you already believe or something people that you want approval from believe. It's, it's difficult and dangerous to be an independent thinker. It has been throughout history. It is still because you risk the ire of people that are really generally trying to just confirm and solidify what they want to be the way people think things and think about things. And if you step too far outside of that, um, there's all sorts of ways that you can run into uh, alienation and attack. Now, from a spiritual point of view, that doesn't really make much sense because it, it lacks compassion. There's no curiosity and dialogue about where someone is and where they're going. I find myself, you know, pretty open to whatever spiritual path anyone is on or wants to be on or however they want to do it. The idea of lineage or having a particular approach and a particular set of methods that have been tried and true over generations, it's similar to the way studies, you know, have this beautiful quality of, hey, you can reproduce this. Someone else can go out and check your work and see if it comes true again or if it's seen to be true again. And the same way in spiritual practice that's in a lineage, you, you have methods that have been tried and true and done and, and you can kind of be tested by, by someone who knows more or you can also test your experience against what you've been told and you can kind of refine and develop and it, it means you don't have to reinvent the wheel. At the same time, in the modern world, we live in a cornucopia of ideas, the information age, a melting pot of perspectives and it's really important to be open-minded because we're going to encounter people with very different points of view and if we're living with a residency so to speak at the level of our representational concepts and ideologies we will be perturbed and distraught when we encounter people's 
ideas and ideologies that don't fit because the zeros and ones are fighting. The binary this and that, here and there. Um, that's a real thing. And it creates warfare at, at its root. Or it is the creation of warfare, you could say. The, the poor handling of divergent views. The actual capacity to accommodate your own truth and someone else's perspective and truth and your own perspective, to, to hold both of those seems like a valuable skill. And if religion or spiritual practice isn't leading us towards that, you have to kind of wonder if your practice is leading you to put someone else in higher esteem and authority than your own mind, and then also you're kind of distrusting your own capacity, uh, you're getting disempowered. A really good teacher will never let you disempower yourself. They, they may say, hey, I know some things you don't, and it's wonderful to be open and humble and let someone show you blind spots. That's essential on the path. We all need that. Truth is, we can get that more and more the more we see the whole world as our teacher. But training with a relational human to, to develop that is fantastic. But at some point, I think the real teachers that are not just playing out some sort of pattern are actually wanting you to trust yourself, which is the scary thing about reality being unstructured the way it is and that we're all in it. Essentially, we're already in the true reality. And what do we know of it? How do we feel about it? Often we want to grab on to ideologies or opinions or someone's authority and perspective and say, well, these people said this. Yeah, but what do you say? And it's not about throwing one out for the other. Again, we can have both and thinking, zero and one thinking. The multifaceted jewel is this beautiful symbol. We just can recall its visual form and go, oh yeah, reality is all of it's connected by the clearness of the crystal, all of it's reflective and brilliant, and each facet's in its own relative location, grouped with other facets, and yet they're all connected. And so this kind of unity of ultimate and relative truth allows us to be very educated consumers of our own spiritual practices and how to listen to someone's point of view and then integrate it into our own perspective. Ultimately, we have to work with who we are and our conditioning. And so it is about connecting with reality. And reality is not some statement, you know, I proclaim reality has the following qualities. That again is representational and that's a, a thesis and that's a theory and that's that's within reality and it can never encompass it, no matter how brilliantly it's done. And it can be very helpful to learn those theories, but then you're left, here you are, sitting with yourself in subjective experience. You are the universe knowing yourself to the degree you do. Now what? So it's important that we're not just sort of putting our head down and following blindly. And it's also important not to reinvent the wheel in every way. These two together are, it's, it's, it, these are kind of counteracted by this zero and one thinking, this wide-mindedness, this non-opinionated affiliation, this 
open-hearted, open-minded, open-awareness affiliation. This unstructured, spacious approach that's like, we aren't afraid of sharing or positing a theory or a view. There's nothing wrong with language. And we're also not completely like hook, line, and sinker that this is it. And I think when we look at fundamentalism and orthodoxy and religion and all the damage that it's done, it's condensing the brilliance and luminous, sparkling, diamond-like awareness of the universe into these pedantic, stuck, limited, you know, very forceful, restrictive edicts or statements. And then people who don't do it can be punished and people who do can be rewarded. And it's just very primitive. And there's nothing wrong with primitiveness in the sense of our evolution and our habits and our instincts. You know, they're incredible. They're beautiful. And yet at the same time, when we are very territorial and um, aggressive and sort of fearfully based in our exploration, we tend to retract and simplify and make very solid and narrow proclamations. And then you start having people say that person's outside and we're inside, or that person shouldn't be doing that, they should be doing this. And you really got to look at yourself when you start saying things like that and saying, wow, is that really the path that you you see? Is it, I mean, because that is a way of being and that is a reality we can create. But when we create that reality, it's 99% of the time it's fear-based. And I don't know what the other 1% would be, but I'll, I'll be open to not knowing. But I think a lot of the time, at any rate, maybe it's not that, maybe it is, but a lot of the time, when we need things and need other people to do certain things certain ways, that's not compassion. That's fear. And fear is beautiful and important, and it's a great teacher, and it's an important energy. But to go into fear with open-heartedness and be with fear as an energy that teaches us, that's really what I mean by the word fearlessness and the journey of being fearless is really the same as being vulnerable because being itself is tender and it's indestructible and it's constantly um, feeling and being affected and caring. It is not uncaring. So you can't have it both ways. You either care or you don't. And if you do, there's some tenderness. And if there's tenderness, there's vulnerability. And if there's vulnerability, there's strength because there's an inseparability there. So a multifaceted jewel is a symbol, visual symbol. The phrase creation is perception, perception is creation. This is similar to the Heart Sutra, form is emptiness, emptiness is form, but it targets more this idea that the act of perceiving is an act of creation. And creation is an act of perceiving. This is the medium or vehicle of experience. And that experience itself is the root of reality. Without it, there are no theories, there are no formulas, there are no equations, there are no representative schemas. 
it is the great mother of experience of all that we know. And just because we don't have uh, so-called objective methods to define the scope of such a thing doesn't mean that we can't experience this spacious, luminous emptiness, this brilliant perceptual creation power, this creational perceptional power of our being, that the reality is that universe, the a self-aware, self-alive universe is manifesting right now in trillions and trillions of forms of life and perspectives. And that is a, in a grand scheme, that is part of the totality of what reality is. It is many perspectives. And there's no point to perch or say, well, I'm done. This perspective is the right place to put my little bird's nest. You can put it on that branch, but there's another branch on another tree. And I think when we start to try to make relative infinite truths of reality, we try to like narrow it into something. I think we truncate the openness and unstructuredness of reality. So we can keep exploring endlessly, and that's wonderful. And we can know the basic nature of reality, its emptiness and luminosity. And then beyond that, it's all about creation and compassion and playfulness and dialogue. And then we kind of put the orthodoxy in, in its resting place as part of a mistaken approach to reality. <laughs>